Um, Nehemiah chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. I've entitled the sermon, Our God Will Fight for Us, Three Faith Responses for Enduring Opposition. Uh, This chapter is all about the opposition that Nehemiah and the Israelites receive for building the wall. And this is not the last time we're going to see opposition. It's not the first time, and it won't be the last. In chapter 6, they get it all over again in a different form. But uh, Sanballat and Tobiah are determined to oppose the work of God, and so we will see how they attack Nehemiah and and uh, the Israelites in this particular chapter, and also what we can learn about how to respond to opposition as God's people ourselves. So last week we paused the narrative uh, in chapter 3, and we just surveyed the people who actually contributed to building the wall. But today, with that conclusion given, the author backtracks and recounts the progress of the wall that happened even amidst the opposition of the enemies of God. We see God's people under attack in this particular chapter, right in the midst of their building project. And so we can learn a lot about their faith-filled responses to this opposition. We're going to look at three different kinds of attacks this morning. The verbal attack, the physical attack, and the internal attack. And how each one of these attacks is responded to by faith in God. And what we can learn uh, from this about how we should respond uh, to various opposition we receive in the Christian life uh, as well. So first of all, let's look at the first six verses and consider the verbal attacks. Now, the opponents of the Israelites, namely Sanballat, a governor, and Tobiah, another governor, do not take kindly to the miraculous progress they have made. Ah, there it is. We get this every couple times a year, too. Makes listening all the more difficult, but I know you're up for it. Uh, In chapter 2, they might have been amused or confused by Nehemiah's plans. But now, they're no longer just amused and confused by them. They are upset. They are mad. They want to do something about it. So the first tactic that Sanballat and Tobiah uh, bring to bear upon the Israelites is to taunt them verbally. This first wave is an assault of words. It's a form of verbal abuse that's meant to discourage and dissuade the efforts of the Israelites. It's psychological warfare that's designed to demoralize them. And really, this is the easiest way to attack, isn't it? Because it requires very little of the person actually doing it, especially in Sanballat's case, where he lives 12 miles away from the people he ridicules. In fact, Sam Ballot was most likely the governor of Horan, which is a town about 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But aside from being easy, it can also be effective as verbal attacks strike at the hidden insecurities and weaknesses that almost all of us have. This kind of attack is replicated through the internet courage of keyboard warriors with their anonymous Twitter accounts, and resembles so-called discernment ministries all over the World Wide Web today who take verbal cheap shots at the people of God. These cruel taunts take the form of five questions in verses 1 through 3 that are designed to wound and tear at the seams of Israel's confidence in God and hopefully get them off of the work. Let's look at these five questions briefly. First of all, in verse 2, They ask, what are these feeble Jews doing? They're saying, you're weak. You're weak. 
So they're belittling their strength. How, how, anyone, how could anyone so small and insignificant as them hope to rebuild these cities' walls? You're weak. Second, will you, will they restore it for themselves? That is, you're incompetent. They derided their ambitions. Who do you think you are? Some sort of skilled carpenters? You're a group of 41 clerics and laymen. And look at that guy. He even brought his daughters. They're desperate. I'm sure she's a professional contractor with a degree in architecture. This isn't the first time she's built a functioning defense structure. Again, questioning their competence to do such a work. Thirdly, will they sacrifice? Now, I don't think this is just a question about will they work hard enough to do it. But I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's them telling them, you're naive. You're not going to get to the point where you're going to be able to offer sacrifices again. Uh, your dedication and thanksgiving offerings when the wall is rebuilt. So they're mocking their optimism. They're calling them naive. you just going to pray this wall up, Israelites? Will they finish it in a day? They're saying you're unrealistic. Not only are you weak, not only are you incompetent, not only are you naive, but you are unrealistic. So they're lampooning their enthusiasm. Don't they realize what an enormous task they're taking on? And then finally, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? So they're saying, you're delusional. Can they bring these stones back to life? So they're undermining their confidence. And then... His buddy Tobiah, the Ammonite, Sanballat's pesky sidekick, jumps in there and says, also, you're not doing a very good job. Notice what he says in verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, got that, got that liquid courage now that Sanballat has spoken. He says, yes, what they're building. If a fox goes up, he will break it down their sto- bring down their stone wall. Ha, ha, ha. He says a fox is going to topple that thing. It's nothing. So again, they're using verbal attacks to deride them, calling them weak, incompetent, naive, unrealistic, and delusional. But before we see Nehemiah's response, how would you respond in that situation? How would I respond? Well, our flesh, the world, the devil would tell us, retaliate. Fight back. Don't take that. Give it back to them. Isn't that the culture we live in? Yeah, it is. We might say, you think we're weak, incompetent, naive, unrealistic, delusional? Well, sand ballot, you're not so hot yourself. You talk a big game with that army around you. Why don't you come over here and talk, tell me to my face? See, we confront. Hey, Tobiah, you're just a petty governor of an insignificant province on the remote end of the empire. I work for the king. You're the governor of a desert. Ooh, people want to live there. But Nehemiah didn't do any of that. If he had, he just lowered himself to their level. Instead, Nehemiah and the people respond how they have been responding all along and how we as God's people are called to respond to verbal attacks. We must respond to cruel taunts by turning to God with one deaf ear. We must respond to cruel taunts by turning to God with one deaf ear. Notice, he turns immediately to God. 
Would that God, God's people would do this in our cultural moment today with so much rancor and divisiveness and quickness to jump on Facebook and air our grievances. Would that we turn to God. Would that we prayed. Notice verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So he prays for three things. Let their taunts turn back on them. Let them experience what we've experienced and don't forgive them. (laughs) That sounds like a pretty pointed and harsh prayer, doesn't it? Why does he pray that? Well, just to be clear, it's not because his feelings are hurt. It's because Sanballat and Tobiah are mocking God. They're mocking God's faithfulness. Psalm 5.5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 139, verse 21, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Psalm 5.10, Punish them, God. Let them fall by their own schemes. Drive them out because of their many crimes, for they rebel against you. Psalm 104.35, May sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more. Say, but Pastor Mark, what does that have to do? Didn't Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Absolutely. Jim Hamilton on that idea of how to think about these tensions of praying for those who persecute us and praying sort of imprecation over those who persecute us. He says, it's not loving to want someone to continue in their evil and avoid God's justice. It's loving to desire that God would deliver someone from his or her evil by means of the revelation of his justice against them. Jerry Packer says, Restraining the desire for revenge and asking God to show mercy to your enemies by converting them, while at the same time acknowledging that he will certainly judge his enemies and even, even asking him to start doing that at once are not mutually exclusive lines of prayer. Both are expressions of God-glorifying desire. See, saving people to the glory of God's grace or condemning people to the glory of God's righteousness are both means by which God's name is hallowed. And so it's as if Nehemiah is praying, if you're not going to save them, God, judge them. If you're not going to forgive them, don't forgive them. If you're not going to change them, leave them to themselves. And may they reap the judgment that they are calling down on us, even on their own heads. T.J. Betts, a commentator and professor at Southern Seminary, says, Nehemiah's concern is not for personal vengeance. It is a zeal for the furtherance of the kingdom of God and the removal of anything that opposes it. So he prays, he entrusts what they are saying and all their verbal attacks and assaults to God. And then notice verse 6, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. They got back to work. They prayed to God. And then they picked up their shovels. They picked up the bricks. They started building the wall again. That's why I said we must respond to cruel taunts by turning to God with one deaf ear. Now, that language of one deaf ear comes from Charles Spurgeon's lecture to my students. If you haven't read that particular chapter, it's worth reading at some point. Um, He recommends that all of God's people, but especially spiritual leaders, should have one deaf ear toward their critics. He doesn't say have two deaf ears because critics are sometimes right. And we all, especially leaders, need to be open to hearing truth that we may not even want to hear. But we need to have one deaf ear. Here's what Spurgeon says about that. 
In case of most false reports against yourself, for the most part, use the deaf ear. In almost all cases, it's the wisest course to let such things die a natural death. A great lie, if unnoticed, is like a big fish out of water. It dashes and plunges and breaks itself to death in a short time. To answer it is to supply it with its element and to help it to a longer life. Falsehoods usually carry their own refutation somewhere about them and sting themselves to death. Some lies especially have a peculiar smell which betrays their rottenness to to every honest nose. Your blameless life will be your best defense. Only abstain from fighting your own battles, and in nine cases out of ten, your accusers will gain nothing by their malevolence but chagrin for themselves and contempt from others. To prosecute the slanderer is very seldom wise. And so as a result, Nehemiah and the Israelites turn one deaf ear to their critics, and they get back to work. May God help us to do the same when we are verbally opposed or attacked. May we respond to God, turn to him in prayer, and operate with one deaf ear. Second, the physical attack. The physical attack. When the verbal attack doesn't work, the ante gets upped. The taunts then are followed by plots that are actual sinful plans to obstruct the progress of the wall. The opposition was not ceasing, it was mounting. It went from Sanballat to Sanballat and Tobiah to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And now, according to verse 7, it's an even larger group. Look at that. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. So again, Sanballat's recruiting more opposition when his minimal opposition at first didn't work. And then Tobiah and Geshem were added, and now the groups get larger and larger. So the opposition is not going away just because Nehemiah prayed about it. It's increasing. We need to have categories for that in our own thinking. Just because we pray about a difficulty doesn't mean that difficulty won't intensify. Often that difficulty will intensify, even as we're praying about it. Even as we're behaving in godly ways, people will continue to treat you poorly. Okay? So we need to be aware of that and comfortable with that and not see somehow, God, are you not answering prayer? God, what's going on? No, God's accomplishing his purpose in our lives and working out his sovereign will, even while he makes us wait on some of those answers. Now, it was increasing, that is the opposition, and it was threatening, and it necessitated a guard being set, which carries us through really the rest of the chapter. So Sanballat, Tobiah, and all his cohort were plotting and inciting confusion and division within their ranks, and they were doing so by force. Look at verse 8. And they all plotted together to come and fight. There's the physical attack. Fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. But notice how they responded. Verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Look at verses 16 through 18, where we read, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and the half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah. And then he goes on in verses 17 and 18 to describe this sort of guard that they had set up. He describes it again in verses 21 through 23, how no one would sleep unless they had sufficient guard available and that they were devoting themselves in part to work, but also in part to protection and making sure that the work was able to continue without physical attack from their opposition. 
So what do we learn about physical attack? Well, we respond to physical attacks by turning to God. That's what they did here. They prayed again, but also with some common sense. Right? Common sense. Setting a guard. Giving yourself some distance. Creating healthy boundaries. All that is not contrary to faith. People who are interested in physically attacking you need to be kept at bay, away from you. Such steps are not contrary to faith. In fact, faith leads us to wise protection of ourselves and to protect ourselves from those who are harming us and people that we love. One commentator says, here we read of plans that are being laid out to physically attack the people working on the wall. Nehemiah could have called a halt to the work and transitioned into an all-day, all-night prayer meeting, asking the Lord for protection. Or he could have redoubled his efforts and done everything within his power to fight the opposition. But he didn't fall into the trap of either or, but instead chose both and. He combined the spiritual and the human. He prayed and guarded, not prayed or guarded. Right? So we see turning to God also means use common sense. Okay? I'm reminded of the two young girls who found themselves a little bit late as they were walking to school. These wouldn't be my two girls, although they could walk to school. One day we're going to be late, or one day they said as they were walking, we're going to be late, so let's stop and pray and ask the Lord to help us get there on time. No, responded the other, let's run and pray that the Lord helps us get there on time. Right? And that's what Nehemiah is doing. He's running and praying. He's setting a guard and praying. There's action and prayer, not prayer and inaction. Sometimes we can use prayer that way, right? We can, well, I'm just praying about it. Well, sometimes it's good, but what are you doing while you're praying, right? Sometimes the Lord makes us the answer to our own prayers in some ways. He certainly does it here in the midst of Nehemiah's prayer. No doubt the wisdom to create a guard and how to station that guard came out of those prayer times that Nehemiah was praying to the Lord. Being practical, though, brothers and sisters, can be the most spiritual thing we do sometimes. I'm reminded of another example of of the drowning man. A fellow was uh, stuck on his rooftop in a flood, and he was praying to God to get him off the roof as the waters increased. And a man in a rowboat came by, and the fellow shouted to the man on the roof, Jump in! Come on, let's go! And he said, No, uh, it's okay, I'm praying to God, he's going to save me. So the rowboat went on, and then a motorboat came by, and the fellow in the motorboat shouted, Jump in, I can save you! To this, the stranded man said, No thanks, I'm praying to God, he's going to save me, I have great faith. So the motorboat went on, and then a helicopter came by, and the pilot shouted down, Grab this rope, I'll lift you up to safety! And to this, the stranded man said, no thanks, I'm praying to God, I have great faith, he will save me. So the helicopter reluctantly flew away, and soon the water rose above the rooftop, and the man drowned. He went to heaven, and he finally got his chance to discuss this whole situation with God, at which point he exclaimed, I had faith in you, and you didn't save me, you let me drown, I don't understand why. And to this, God replied, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter, what more do you want? One other pastor shared a story that he was chatting with an unemployed man in the congregation. And after being asked what he was doing to find a job, the young man said he was praying and simply resting in the Lord to be supplied with a job. The pastor responded, brother, it doesn't look like you're resting in the Lord. It looks like you're sleeping in him. 
See, there's a difference in dependence upon God that leads us to act in dependence on God and sleeping in the Lord. See, resting, trusting, and believing should lead us to working, sweating, and trying in reliance upon God's necessary help. And that's what we see in the way they respond to the physical attack. They set a guard even while they are praying. Thirdly and finally, we come to the internal attack. So we've seen the way they respond to the internal, the, uh, uh, the verbal attack. They call upon God and then they turn a deaf ear to that criticism and keep working. We've seen how they respond to the physical attack. They get to work, they keep working, but they're praying and they're setting a guard. And thirdly and finally, we see the internal attack. And this is perhaps most devastating of all because we see the people growing weary and we see the progress slowing down. And they say essentially in verses 10 through 14, by ourselves, we're not going to be able to get this done. See, the opposition is starting to weigh on them, as it does on all of us. Even the most diligent and spiritual among us, if the opposition keeps coming, the hands get weak, the soul gets lethargic, the prayers get shorter, the anger gets more frequent, the bitterness sets in, and the temptation to give up rises. The people no longer have a mind to work in the second half of the chapter. Instead, they have a mind to fear. They're building with their doubts and framing walls of worry. We'll never finish at this rate, they say. It's too much. We can't keep building. We have to defend ourselves now too? Nehemiah, call an army in. Can't we get the Persian army? You work for him. Send him a text. Tad anachronistic illustration, but you get the point. As with any big task, project managers, project managers will tell you that the typical cycle of trying to complete any major project is this. Enthusiasm, followed by disillusionment, followed by panic, followed by searching for the guilty, followed by punishment for the innocent, followed by praise for the non-participants. And that's kind of what we see happening here, right? They're meeting some opposition, they're meeting some difficulty, and then there's disillusionment and punishment or panic, and then there's searching for the guilty, who to blame, and then punishment of the innocent, people who didn't do anything wrong, and then praise for all those people who are wise enough to not get involved to begin with. An armchair quarterback, the whole thing. Now we see three sources of this internal attack in verses 10 through 14. I want to show them to you. First of all, you notice that the internal attack is coming from within. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. That is, the Israelites are getting tired. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So the reality of the task and the difficulty of it was coming home to those who were laboring. It was going to be hard, and at times it looked impossible. Most importantly, they began to lose sight of God and his providential care and his sustaining hand over the entire work. They began to believe that they were, you notice this, by themselves. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You're right. By yourself, you will not be able to rebuild the wall. But you're not by yourself. You have God with you. And he is going to enable you to build the wall. So they had lost zeal. They'd lost vision. They lost confidence. They lost faith. And this lack of faith begins producing complaints. 
Notice, secondly, not only does the internal attack come from within, but it also comes from their enemies in verse 11. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So again, they're internalizing all these things, those things that were said that, and those physical threats that were made to try to discourage them. We'll stop you. Don't even think about continuing. We'll force you to stop if we have to. And so they're, they're getting real. They're, they're saying, look, they've left. They're coming back. We're, we're going to be in real trouble if we keep going. And then notice verse 12. They get not only internally attacked from within, from their enemies, but also from their friends. Verse 12, at, the t- at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions. So I'm guessing these are the non-participatory Jews. And said to us ten times, that's kind of exhausting, you must return to us. Quit this fool's errand. Stop trying to rebuild what can't be rebuilt. Just come live where we live and avoid their opposition. We will be fine without that wall. So the Jews who had been scattered to the neighboring areas discouraged and distracted the work by trying to persuade the workers just to give up. They said, look, look, I'm on your side. I'm on your team. I'm looking out for you. But just come back and let's be faithful where the Lord has placed us. Sometimes attacks occur in our own ranks, don't they, brothers and sisters? In his, well-intentioned, in his book, Well-Intentioned Dragons, Marshall Shelley delineates some of the types of people who will oppose um, strong acts of faith on the part of God's people. Be on the lookout for these types. Perhaps you see yourself in some of them. I know I see myself in some of them. First of all, you've got the wet blanket. The wet blanket is no matter what the idea or decision that's on the table, the wet blanket has a quiver full of reasons why it has never worked, why it will never will work, and why we should not do it because it isn't the will of God. Wet blanket right on, the, right on the vision. Second, you have the fickle financier. If you do this or that, I'll never give another dime to that ministry. Without my support and the support of my friends who feel the same way as I do, your ministry and your leadership is dead in the water. What about the sniper? Never seems to talk directly in a healthy manner, voicing concerns, but rather stays at a safe distance and takes indirect pot shots in private conversations that paint someone in a bad light. What about the legalist who who has a list of absolutes that run from how much the leader paid for his house to how many verses should be sung for a particular song? Or what about the merchant of muck, the group gossip who disguises everything behind the mask of a prayer request and concerns? Surely we've seen ourselves in some of those. I see myself in some of those as well. But how do they respond? How do they respond to all these internal attacks? Well, notice, we respond to internal attacks by turning to God with complete and utter abandonment. We respond to internal attacks by turning to God with complete and utter abandonment. While Nehemiah recognizes that people are spread apart and this makes them more vulnerable to attack, what does he do? He creates a rallying point in the event of an emergency. Look at verse 19. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound, verse 20, of the trumpet, Rally to us there, our God will fight for us. And while he puts people on guard behind the wall in open places with their families in verse 13, his ultimate hope for their defense is God himself. 
He said in verse 20, our God will fight for us. And then he says again in verse 14, And I looked and rose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He gives himself to God with utter abandon. He said, God has said he will fight for us. Let's give ourselves to him. Let's not be afraid. Let's remember the Lord who is great and awesome and let's engage. This is exactly what Moses told the Israelites to do on the bank of the Red Sea, wasn't it? Exodus 4, 10 through 14, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you? Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Brothers and sisters, in many cases, when we're experiencing verbal, physical, or internal attack, what we need is just that. Entrusting ourselves with utter abandonment to the God who promises to fight for us. Four concluding lessons from this chapter. Four concluding lessons that I hope will be a help in, as we think through how to apply what we've seen. Number one, a lesson on persecution. Brothers and sisters, um, as those who identify with Jesus... I know we haven't felt it much in previous generations, but we must be prepared going forward to be treated the same way that Jesus was. God's people have always been despised by God's enemies. And as our culture increasingly secularizes, we are heading quickly toward the margins. And we can't elect our way out of this. It's time to get with the New Testament and recognize that here we have no lasting city, even in these increasingly un-United States of America. Matthew 10, 24 and 25, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If we carry his name, we're going to get the blame. If we carry his name, we'll get the blame. And we need to be prepared to receive that. Luke 6:46 Woe to you when all people speak well of you for so their fathers did the false prophets If you want people to like you just betray Jesus and they'll like you but you'll also be in league with the false prophets If you want to be liked by everyone it's not the best time to become a Christian or to stay one for that matter Instead sell ice cream You'll make everybody happy that way Are you ready? I'm not. We aren't up for it, which leads us to our next lesson, a lesson about prayer. We are going to have to relearn the importance of prayer all over again, brothers and sisters, if we're going to shine as lights in a dark place. We've got to abandon the world's strategies of power, fighting, division, and retaliation. Instead, we're going to have to remember that our fight is not against flesh and blood, that we are called to love our enemies, and we are called to pray for those who persecute us. Acts 7, 59 to 60, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, God, I hate them so much. No, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Just like his master. Why did Stephen pray that? How could Stephen pray that? Because he knew God fought for him. Do you believe that God will fight for you? If you don't, you will fight for yourself. That's how you know you're not trusting God to fight for you. Because you feel like you have to fight for yourself because no one else will. Really? I thought you had a father in heaven. Why would you abandon his fighting for your fighting? We must entrust to God the rage of others against us and respond with self-denying love. And prayer is the only way we will get that. If prayer is not our natural response or instinctive reaction to ridicule, it must be. Here's what Chuck Swindoll said. We need to retrain your reflexes. Let your first response to criticism be an honest, cathartic, soul-cleansing season of prayer. Speak as little in response as you possibly can. Ask the Lord to deal with your critics His way and in His time. Remain focused on the objective. In time, you will find that you are never used by God more effectively than when you're praying for your critics. Difficult people at work, difficult people in family, difficult neighbors, difficult friends. Pray, pray, pray for them and for yourself. Third lesson, perseverance. In the midst of persecution, even while pleading with God in prayer, we will face discouragement and distraction, just like the Israelites did. We'll face weariness and worry. We will face fear and fickleness, and we'll be tempted to quit and throw in the towel too. And in certain moments, the task that the Lord assigns to us will feel like too much. The ongoing chronic health problem, the agonizing heartbreak of wayward children, the difficult marriage, the dead-end job, the loneliness of widowhood or singleness. But let us, not, let us remember, brothers and sisters, we are not alone in this. We not, not only have each other, we have the testimonies down throughout church history of God's people. Raymond Brown, commentator on Nehemiah, says, The story of Christ's church across the centuries is a chronicle of exemplary heroism and sacrificial service. Many of the outstanding personalities of Christian history had to cope with immense hardship of one kind or another. They too proved there was no service without suffering. Their remarkable achievements are well known, but their inward conflicts are easily forgotten. Think of John Calvin teaching, writing, and preaching despite repeated attacks of fever and tuberculosis and renal colic and chest infections and gout. Richard Baxter expounding scripture, encouraging friends by supportive letters, writing books, a pen in God's hand, though scarcely free from pain on any day throughout his life. John Wesley and George Whitfield uplifting Christ and winning skulls, though souls, though both were saddened by unhappy marriages. Charles Haddon Spurgeon preaching, sometimes at his best when he was in the dark valley of depression. In times of intense persecution, John Bunyan reminded his contemporaries of inevitable sacrifice. He said, the believer is resolved for heaven. If Satan cannot win him by flatteries, he will endeavor to weaken him by discouragements. And again, Bunyan said, there is no man that goes to heaven that he, but by carrying a cross. The cross is the standing waymark by which all go to glory. Brothers and sisters, we have a long track record of cloud of witnesses that are there to press us on and encourage us. Get familiar again with the saints in Hebrews 11 and even with the book of Nehemiah. I love Reap a Cheap. 
He's the uh, valiant mouse in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And in the voyage of the Don Treader, he and Prince Caspian are traveling to the end of the world. And at one point, it looks as though they might not be willing to go any farther. And the strongest desire in Reepicheep's valiant mouse heart is to get to the end of the world so that he can enter Aslan's country. And as the crew seems unwilling to go on, Lucy turns to Reepicheep and says, Are you going to say anything, Reep? And he responds, My plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the Don Treader. When she fails me, I paddle east with my four paws. When I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country, overshot or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. And Peepaseek will be head of talking mice in Narnia. Don't you love that? Just that resolve. It's that resolve of Daniel, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will not serve you. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he won't, we're not bound down to your gods. We're going to heaven. It's that sort of resolve that we need. And finally, where will we get that kind of resolve? Where are we going to get that resolve for persecution and prayer and, per, and, 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 and having the, 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 the intensity and desire to persevere? We get it from perspective. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Brothers and sisters, that's our Christ application from this chapter. Just as Nehemiah was opposed, so was Jesus. And we consider him who endured such opposition against Uh, from sinners against himself so that we won't grow weary or lose heart. Brothers and sisters, just like Nehemiah, our Lord Jesus received cruel verbal taunts. He received sinister plots. He received distracting discouragement from the mouths of his enemies. Matthew 27, 29. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Matthew 27, 41 to 44. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. But how did Jesus respond? Brothers and sisters, for us and for our salvation, he turned to God He hoped in God, and he relied on God. He did it all because he had a great burden on his heart. He had a great work from God to accomplish, to save us from our sins and to reconcile us to the Father. Don't look at the massive rubble pile and allow the unending work project to dominate your vision. Instead, lift your eyes to your Savior, who is a God who is great and awesome, and who has committed himself to fight for you every day of his life and your life until you're there with him. Let's pray. Father, as soon as we conclude this service and after this day concludes, we get back to work. We get back to work in the midst of lots of opposition all around us, challenges, trials, difficulties, 
Some of us fear those things. Most of us are weary of those things, whether it be physical or emotional or spiritual or relational or marital or parental or vocational, financial. Whatever sorts of oppositions and difficulties and trials we are facing, we pray that you would help us to respond the way our Savior would have us to respond, the way he responded. And as those who follow him, we pray that we would follow in his footsteps. And because you have loved us and demonstrated your great love for us by giving Christ for us, we know that you will work all things together for our good. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things that we need for life and godliness? So help us to not fight for ourselves when we have you to fight for us. Help us to remember you our great and awesome God, and to get back to work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.